Kyle Cameron here. I'm in Cape Town. I was the only journalist in northern Nigeria. Not an adventure until you get lost in Tijuana. You get caught inside by a giant wave, you feel really alone. I love the adventure of waking up and not knowing what will happen and that being my job. I'm standing at a desert oasis right now. A lot of tourists don't see this part of Bali. Smiles and thumbs up. Thumbs up. Hey everybody, my name's Kyle, this is my show. I surf, I make movies, and I love asking questions. These are conversations with fascinating people I meet along the way. If you like this podcast, do me a favor and share it with your friends and give it a rating on iTunes. And if you have feedback or requests for future guests, go to my website, kyle.surf, and leave a comment in the blog section. My guest today, the first guest ever to appear on The Kyle Tierman Show, is my good friend, Mr. Kaj Larson. Kaj is a Vice News correspondent and Navy SEAL with a master's in public policy from Harvard University. Kaj helped develop the Vanguard Journalism Series, which received an Emmy Award. He had himself waterboarded on TV and was the first Western journalist in Mogadishu in over a decade. He's reported from Yemen, Cambodia, Colombia, and Haiti. Kaj is a practitioner of Brazilian jiu-jitsu and Muay Thai and has competed in several mixed martial arts competitions. And he's placed third in the Escape from Alcatraz duathlon. Um, Kaj and I had a fantastic conversation, which ranged from the time he got molested by dolphins to how junior lifeguards in Santa Cruz prepared him for the SEALs and how the landscape of media is changing in the digital age. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Kaj Larson. Welcome to the show, Kaj. Thanks for coming. Yeah, buddy. Thank you for having me. How was your spearfishing experience the other day? Oh, it was awesome. It was actually a, uh, a Han Solo spearfishing experience. Um, but it was funny because I was trying to meet up with, with you guys, with you and your dive buddy. Um, and so I, but I got there late and so I swam out and I went to all these other different groups of spear fishermen and had these sort of like awkward encounters because nobody can recognize anybody like, Oh, Kyle, is that you? Nope. Just another guy with a spear gun moving on. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're, uh, you're invisible when you're, <laughs> yeah, it's one of the most awkward sports I've ever had to get into, but the amount of gear that you have, the, the amount that can become frustrating so quickly even when you do shoot a fish, having to string it and having to get it. I mean, some people are ninjas at it, but other people like myself, I'm just kind of getting into it. There's a lot of barriers to entry to keep people away from it. It's true. I constantly think as I'm like schlepping the float line and like my gun awkwardly that there's there's got to be a better way. Right. And I'm sort of imagining and I've even got some ideas of, of stuff that we did when we were doing combat diving in the teams that I could bring to spearfishing, which which might sound a little extreme, but it's it's more just in the vein. I'm not talking about like using explosive charges, although that would work. But I, I mean, <laughs> only in reefs of, in, in, in Indonesia, right? right? I, no, I just mean in terms of like streamlining your gear and, and having less stuff. Um, but then again, like it's a pretty proven model and, you know, 
you what you start off you feel kind of like when you're on land awkward and lumbering around like the stay puff marshmallow man with all this stuff hanging off you but then you get in this weightless aquatic environment and like all your inner grace your merman comes out what kind of stuff um did you have to do as a seal in terms of streamlining your gear yeah so one of the esoteric arts that you practice in the SEAL teams is combat diving or combat swimming. And this is basically, and there's only a few special operations units in the world that do this really well. The The most storied and fabled of these guys are the German Kampf swimmers, the combat swimmers. Uh, and they have sort of, in some ways, uh, perfected and set a lot of the standards for for how to accomplish combat combat diving or combat swimming. And it's not, frankly, a very often used skill, but it's one of the unique things that differentiates uh, my part of the special operations community from other portions of the special operations community. Um, but basically, what you're doing when you're practicing combat diving is you're using a very special scuba apparatus called a drager which is a rebreather it's a pure oxygen rig which scrubs the oxygen and the advantage there is that you have no bubbles and this makes you very stealthy so you you're diving this um this rig with no bubbles and you often have a, a series of explosive charges on you often in the form of a limpet mine which is a magnetic mine that you would stick to the bottom of a ship um, to destroy that ship. So you can use combat diving for a number of different reasons, but its primary purpose is as a clandestine insertion methodology on a mission, whether that's to get into a port or a harbor to blow up a ship, or whether that's to get um, from sea to shore to place some sensors for a reconnaissance mission. Those are the kind of things that you would do in combat diving. So that's kind of a simplified version of what it is. The military uses uh, animals as well, though, like dolphins. For, well, I mean, you did a story for this just in terms of like, not. I mean, not animals. I mean, they, they used to do it where they would bring animals in to, to blow up the dolphins and that kind of thing. But now it's much more for dolphins seeking out explosive devices. I mean, you did a story yeah. on this, right? Yeah, so I, I first became aware of this during my time in training. There is uh, a very a sort of little-known component of the Navy. It's actually used to be run under the EOD umbrella, which is the Explosive Ordnance Disposal Teams. So the EOD teams used to run what's called the Marine Mammal Program. This actually dates back to the 1960s. Uh, when they first started studying dolphins, they were studying them to try and make torpedoes more efficient. And they were wondering if they could figure out how their streamlined bodies could translate into a better torpedo. Uh, but instead they quickly realized like, wow, these guys are trainable and perhaps we could use them as delivery mechanisms themselves. Um, and so the Marine Mammal Program, which was classified until the 90s, evolved out of that early research. And what there's, there's many components to them. Uh, the, one of the primary purposes, they have different m models, they call them. So they have the Mark I, which is using a mammal to retrieve fallen torpedoes. So the Navy shoots out these expensive torpedoes and they fall to them on the ocean. And they found that they could train the dolphins to go retrieve these shells so they could be reused. Uh, and then there's a more, I guess you'd say, offensive use for using mammals and that they can actually train these swimmers. And I believe this was called the Mark IV program. The Mark IV anti-combat swimmer dolphins were used to seek out combat swimmers like myself and stop them from infiltrating a port or a harbor or a littoral 
warfare. So when I was in SEAL training um, in second phase, which is dive phase, and we're learning to dive the Draeger, which I sort of described a few minutes ago, but it's actually a very complicated rig to dive, which I could go into really boring granular detail about, but uh, I'll spare you the dive physics lecture. Uh, but when I was in SEAL training, learning to dive the Draeger uh, in San Diego Bay, they would often let the Navy EOD Marine Mammal Program dolphins practice on us. And I always thought because, you know, I'm a waterman and I grew up, you know, in the ocean, in the cold waters of Santa Cruz, that I was going to be the guy who was going to get past the dolphins. And uh, they disavowed me of that mythology very quickly. What happened? <laughs> well, I remember the first time we went against the dolphins, I was like crawling along in the mud in the bottom of San Diego Bay on a practice mission. I had my fake little limpet mine, my dummy limpet mine on my back, and I'm, I'm swimming along down at like 20 or 30 feet, like just kind of hugging the bottom, thinking that, the, and it's night, and it's three in the morning, and I'm swimming across the bay to a Navy ship, which is our target, and I have my my attack board, which is basically a compass that you use underwater to help you navigate underwater. And I'm swimming and I'm kicking, crawling, like just grazing the bottom in order to avoid detection from the dolphin. You can't see anything anyways, and you're, you're tethered to your, your swim buddy who's kicking alongside with you. And the only thing, like about like 0.1 seconds before impact, you sort of get like a shadow effect and you know like oh i'm caught and before you know it this like 1500 pound dolphin has like rammed into you and you drop the attack board and you're like well there goes that plan so they don't just like tap you on the shoulder they ram into you so first they ram you i mean different uh mark four dolphins uh have different levels of aggression like the first time that one hit me like it knocked the wind out of me i was like holy shit like that hurt and what i've heard too is that if you then don't surface they get really aggressive um, and and rise to the surface. You know, one of the one of the most abused jokes in the platoon hut is when we're talking about this stuff. Is um, later on somebody like will mention that dolphins have like one of the highest incidences of rape and and homosexuality in the animal kingdom. So like when a guy really gets nailed, we like to say he was raped by a dolphin <laughs> underwater. <laughs> I didn't know you'd, I didn't know I'd be retelling right, right. this traumatic story on the podcast. Right. It's I, okay. Yeah, it's yeah. okay. A good podcast is like a good therapy session. Totally. Yeah. Let me lay down on this couch here. Yeah. That's why we have the bed for, right. for guests like you. Yeah. For those of you who are listening, this is the new podcast yeah. studio. Um, my old housemate just moved out and his bed is still in here. So it's kind of looks a little bit too close to a porno setting, but it's going to be getting much more professional on the up and up, but the way we're going to do it is with guests like you. So, um, but spearfishing, you're psyched. You're getting into it. I'm into you're, it. You're new to it, but I mean, is it bringing back kind of like a lot of the things that I guess like, you know, when you're not actively a Navy SEAL, you're not getting to go down and dive and do all this kind of stuff, but it's another world down there. Yeah. And in large part, this is thanks to you. You were an inspiration. You helped me like pick out the gear and, and all of that stuff. So so thank you. And, it, and I don't know why it came about at this time in my life. Part of it is that I miss some water activities. Um, the It's definitely something great to do when there's no waves. And uh, yeah, it does combine uh, a lot of that sort of underwater hunting um, into a positive trajectory. Uh, and I just like it. And the thing about free diving and spearfishing is it's kind of, it's, it's physical, it's mindful. It combines 
all the elements. It helps me like find something that I was missing. And it's kind of the challenge of like, how deep can you go? How long can you stay under man versus fish? Do you ever feel... Or maybe I'm just, you know, getting payback for all those dolphin hits. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm going to find you. <laughs> uh, I mean, it seems like uh, a lot of the situations that you've had to put yourself in as a Navy SEAL, it's, I mean, they're highly aggressive, but they're also highly mindful. And that's one thing that I'm getting out of spearfishing is that it it is like... I mean, people think of it as this aggro sport. You're going down there. You're going to go hunt something. You're going to kill something. But I've never... Um, had to do a sport where I had to be so mindful of my movements, even just my arms and the way that I'm um, contracting my muscles on the way down. It's like, it's very meditative in the same way. But I, I wanted to ask you, because I think that there are a lot of misconceptions about being a Navy SEAL where it's just 100% aggro muscle man. But I know that there is a lot of mindfulness to totally. that. Totally. I, I think the right analog is sniper school. Right. Um, During the first half of sniper school, which is the stalking phase, you essentially low crawl everywhere for like two weeks. Right. And you're crawling around in the bush and the whole thing about the stalking phase and you have to pass the stalking phase. It's where most people uh, fail out of sniper school. You have to pass the stalking phase before you even hold the gun and get to the shooting phase. And the stalking phase is an exercise in extraordinary patience. So uh, one of the best snipers that I personally know is my friend Marcus Luttrell, um, who was uh, kind of came into infamy because he wrote this book called Lone Survivor, which Peter Berg made into a movie. And he was on this, this operation where he was the only one who survived. And it all happened... Uh, June 11th, June 28th, 2005. Um, this sort of very famous mission called Operation Red Wings. And Mark Wal- Wahlberg. Exactly. Wahlberg played Luttrell. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and then some other guys played my, my other friends who were killed. Um, but, you know, one of the things I was so impressed about Marcus, who's, who's a big dude, um, Marcus is, yeah, he's like a 6'4 Texan, probably clocks in at 230, but his ability to be still for extraordinarily long periods of time. I'm talking hours because, you know, during sniper school, you have these instructors who are watching from these elevated platforms and you have to sometimes move like one inch per hour in order to not be detected. And you have to take into account, you know, the way the sun is hitting and the shadows that it's creating and how you move in those shadows and and how the winds are blowing to make the grass move. And all of those elements, like this is about, patience and and i think spearfishing is very much about patience in fact when i was first starting you told me this thing which is like oh one of the biggest mistakes people can make early on is they chase fish right like no you're not chasing fish this is stalking in sniper school you're going down you're getting into a hide site and you're waiting for your prey to come swimming by have you always been patient or was that hard for you to learn when you became a seal that's a good question uh i don't think i am particularly patient. I I wouldn't describe it as one of my many virtues. I think I can exercise discipline if patience is required in the pursuit of a certain discipline. So if I am spearfishing, I can exercise patience um, because it's necessary. But in general, I think I'm probably the opposite. I'm pretty high, like on demand. I want it now. 
Right, but you're able to see the bigger picture easily. Yeah, I'll subjugate that component of my natural personality because uh, my capacity for discipline, I guess, is is probably higher than average on order. So I can discipline my own inner nature in order to accomplish the mission. Where do you think your discipline came from? Because, I mean, I'll give you 100% credit on this. I mean, your physical discipline, you go and work out once or twice a day, many times by yourself, while you have you know, running two other businesses. Um, and it seems like it's always been that way. I mean, and I mean, you'll do the work, you'll read the book to do the story. And I've always been really impressed by that about you. I think it's one of your best qualities. How did you cultivate that? It's a good question. Uh, I don't, I don't really know a hundred percent. I think I have some cumulative life experience and some great mentors that helped along the way. You know, I'm I'm here back home now for the f- uh, 50th anniversary of the Junior Lifeguard program in Santa Cruz. And uh, like you were a great Junior Lifeguard. I was a Junior Lifeguard. Then I was a Junior Lifeguard instructor. And uh, it's funny, uh, the guy who started Santa Cruz Junior Lifeguards uh, is, uh, is a guy named Al Mitchell. He's a salty old lifeguard. And uh, Al started it like back in the 60s. And all of these guys had just finished uh, him and this guy Jack DeFore, who later went on to be the athletic director at my high school, uh, these guys had just like retired from military service. They had just come out of the Marines, and in some ways, they um, they created the architecture for the Junior Guard program, kind of on their early Marine Corps training. Like they made the kids like call them sir and like stand in line and all this stuff. Uh, and when I was a junior lifeguard instructor, it was just pre me going into the SEAL team, so I was basically using it as my little training grounds for SEAL training. Um, and these guys were my little soldiers. And so like I exerted that discipline on them. So I I think it actually started, the idea started early on, you know, my father was also uh, a Marine. And while I wouldn't like say discipline is his like highest virtue, like there is some drive in him, um, that he probably, passed on to me. Uh, but mostly I think it was cultivated over time. Like it's the, it started early on. Um, and I think that's actually one of the virtues of the junior lifeguard program. And I think that's why parents like it is you do give like this modicum of discipline, this introduction to, to discipline. And then the, and then it continued on like through water polo in high school. Like my water polo coach was, uh, this guy named Mark Garrett, who was this like incredibly aggressive coach, um, and required, a shit ton of his players. Uh, his son, coincidentally, who is a friend of mine, I, I then mentored into the SEAL teams, and he's a he's a SEAL to this day. Um, and, and then Navy water polo, and then Naval Academy. I entered the Naval Academy at 17. That's sort of forced discipline. Uh, so I do think that it's been a theme to my life. I don't know. I guess like when it comes to when it comes to the the marshmallow, like I've always been one of those kids who could see like like don't eat the marshmallow. Who could wait a few minutes so that he could collect feel many free, marshmallows? Feel free to, feel free to tell that story because a lot of people might not know the marshmallows. Yeah, so there, I'm I'm going to butcher this a little bit, but there's this sort of famous psychological behavioral study that's done with kids, and they study these kids longitudinally, you know, over the course of a long time. And what they did was they took this group of kids and they um, put like a marshmallow in front of them, um, and they said like, if you don't eat this marshmallow 
for five minutes than you could have two marshmallows, right? And they filmed these sessions. They're pretty hilarious to watch. Yeah, as the kids like freaking out, like, yes, like deep totally. breathing, looking like, at the marshmallow. Great Wim Hof, <laughs> yeah. like everything they could. You have to be smarter than now, the marshmallow. <laughs> now, some kids like have zero ability. The second the adult leaves the room, they're eating that marshmallow. Right. And then some kids uh, like you employ all these techniques. You can see them like putting their hands over their eyes, the deep breathing, all this stuff in order to delay. Some kids fail at three minutes and eat the marshmallow. Like it's just it's too compelling. Uh, but then there are kids who um, either because they develop a technique to not look at the marshmallow or whatever, or because they have enough discipline to like push it away, uh, can wait and they can withhold the five minutes and then they get the reward at the end, which is the double marshmallow. Um, and then when they track these kids longitudinally, they found that there's a direct correlation with how they perform in school and in life thereafter, right? So the kids who have this ability to do what, I don't know, John Stewart or uh, Adam Carolla, I heard, once heard say that the key to life is delayed gratification. This is all about delayed gratification, right? Don't take the the thing that makes you feel good in this moment, like look for the the thing that's going to help you long term. Um, if you can, and delayed gratification in some ways is the key to life, right? Like it keeps you from you know just pursuing nothing but fun early on at the expense of long term gain. And so I I think like I, I guess I was always one of those kids who could wait to eat the marshmallow and. Um, they, they started an entire school. The Kipp schools are sort of based on this philosophy. They work their ass off all day, every day. And in fact, even the backs of their T-shirts say, don't eat the marshmallow. <laughs> so um, you gained a lot of physical discipline, obviously, from SEALs, from junior guards, life in the water. Um, but coming from Santa Cruz... Um, love Santa Cruz to death. There are a lot of smart people here and I surround myself with many of them. Um, but there can be a lack of intellectual discipline. Um, you chose to leave and you chose to go to Harvard. Um, what made you take that plunge? And I'm going to add it to a second question of how would you say people at Harvard think and learn differently than you saw, um, people back at home? Yeah. Well, I, I think you've applied the right framework because I th I think the discipline that discipline is kind of ubiquitous across these different fields, whether you're talking about physical or intellectual discipline. And it's important to sort of be balanced across both. I would say using a broad brush to paint my experience uh, in the Ivy League was that people are quite excellent on intellectual discipline and on the cerebral skills required, but don't necessarily balance it with uh, with the physical discipline. Right. Their body is just a machine to move their mind from place to place. Yeah, exactly, as opposed to a fully integrated system. Uh, and there are some sort of brilliant academics in the ivory tower who that's true for. The people that I am personally attracted to are living a sort of more robust life. So my best friend at at Harvard uh, was also my has a black belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu from Henzo Gracie and he was you know training UFC fighters and we would like beat each other up all day in the gym and then we would like beat each other up intellectually in the classroom right so I like people who can sort of embody both domains and I think my my thinking is 
is is impacted by it, right? Like a lot of my ideas and my uh, conclusions are are drawn from relationships and analogs in the physical world. It helps me helps me frame my world. But you know, there's this other thing when I think about mind body separation, I guess in the classic like intellectual versus versus physical sense. And there's other component dimensions too, spirituality, mindfulness. But when I think about that, for me, it really is truly like an integrated system. I don't think well if I feel unhealthy. And there's this classic definition of health as the absence of sickness. And I think that's fundamentally the wrong definition, right? For me, I need my body to be thriving in order for my mind to be striving and thinking. I just, if I feel slovenly, I think slovenly. So a lot of my discipline is is rooted toward towards that exercise addiction. It actually helps me perform. It helps me like press the pedal to the metal in terms of my work ethic all day long. Um, what aspect, when you went to Harvard, of your intellectual rigor did you struggle with most? I think the academic stuff is an evolved discipline for me. My undergraduate career was kind of, was like all over the map and it was good and interesting, um, but it didn't have that sort of rigorous, codified, analytical capabilities. So, um, and and my curriculum at Harvard certainly provided like a rigorous analytical methodology of thinking. So that is important, but it was also just the exposure to really deep thinkers. And I think I benefited uh, as much, if not more, from that exposure than anything else. Um, and, you know, that being said, like, I still, like, it was dying to surf, right? So I would, like, drive down to Newport in the middle of winter, like, put Vaseline on my face, trek across the snow, surf this place called Ruggles, Ruffles, I can't, Ruggles, I think, which is this, this right in Newport. Um, and, you know, and I got that in and it, you know, it helped me uh, get decent grades. Um, have you always lived near the ocean? But except for having gone to Harvard? Yeah, and he, I think so. I think I really have. Um, I, the ocean is pretty fundamental to my life. And I notice even, I'm sure you do these like sort of self analysis checks, like how's my mind, how's my body, right? Like how, how, how's my emotional state of being? Uh, And I do notice that when I'm getting frayed, like maybe I'm home in LA and I have 16 different projects and like, you know, I'm, dating multiple people and it's like everything like starts to go awry (laughs) that if I come home and I like surf the lane where it grounds me in a certain way like there's something very core about the imprint of that early life experience of like being in cold water here in Santa Cruz and I don't know I had actually never thought about it until you said it uh before the podcast like although it's so patently obvious once you said it like it is true there has been like an aquatic theme to my life. I started off as a as a competitive lifeguard and then I played water polo at the Naval Academy and then I became a Navy SEAL, right? And then like everything else thereat. So um, What's your earliest yeah. memory of being in the water? So my dad this is not a memory of mine, but it's kind of an instructive memory is that 
I guess my and my mom tells the story. I th- I think she she's even written about it a little bit. But I guess my parents, like other Santa Cruz counterculture parents, had looked into a lot of child rearing techniques. And I I think there's this Russian baby raising philosophy that says that children can swim prior to six months old naturally. Right, it's close to being in the womb or something. So to my mom's horror, I guess at like three months, my dad like threw me in the pool. And like, you know, a new mother with her first child, like watching her child be thrown in the pool is a pretty scary experience. But apparently like I was okay. Like I bobbed and then my dad got in and I bobbed around and I floated and apparently I was pretty good in the water early on. My first actual water memory experience, like I I really I really don't know. I remember surfing Manresa when I was like eight years old or seven years old um, with my friend Kai Ronzio Air. Um, and he was kind of kind of teaching me the ropes of surfing. His dad was a, a big East Side surfer here. So I think it's somewhere around there. But apparently it started pretty early for me. And on day two of my life, my mom brought me to Capitola Beach. Like, I don't know if you're supposed to bring a baby to the beach on day two, but she did. Here's jaundice. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, get, I guess. Yeah. Or like, I don't know. You're I've not... had this tan ever since. Yeah. You're not supposed to bring puppies, right? They get like parvo or something, right? I don't know if it applies to babies. But anyways, there I was on Capitola Beach and like the Santa Cruz Sentinel came along. I got a picture of myself on the beach. So uh, like I said, that. You know, we're all victims of our past, so I guess I was destined to be a water baby tied to the beach my whole life. Like, I can't imagine living away from the ocean. It provides so much for me. What drew you to water polo? Um, I don't really remember. Well, I went to Harbor, which at the time... Harbor had, High School. Harbor High School, yeah. And yeah. For the people who don't live in Santa Cruz, yeah. who didn't grow up in Northern California, yeah. I went to HHS, Buccaneers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> sorry about that. Um, uh, I went to Harbor High School, which at the time was this water polo powerhouse. So all the 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 better athletes were kind of sucked up and recruited into water polo. Um, and since I swam and and I surfed, this guy Mark Garrett, who was a seminal influence in my life and helped me, you know, go play water polo at the Naval Academy, and just kind of like glommed up all. Anybody who like had the potential, like to help him continue his water polo dynasty, he got like on the team. Some fox catcher. <laughs> oh, <laughs> our water polo team. Like I don't. I, I, may I just digress for a second and yes. talk about this water polo team? Yes. Like I mean, yes. I don't know if this has mass appeal, but like I think it's hilarious. We had a crazy dynasty. We had something like we hadn't lost a game in the Santa Cruz Coast Athletic League for like seventeen years. Like, we literally won every... We were undefeated for, like, 17 years under the legacy of this guy, Mark Garrett. And um, the contrapositive of that was that we had the second worst football team in the nation. We hadn't won a game in the... (laughs) At Santa Cruz Coast Athletic League for like 17 years. This is in high school, right? And it's literally because like the second like this guy, Mark Garrett, identified an athlete with potential, he like soaked him up and made him a water polo player. Uh, so amazing water polo team, shitty football team. The logical extension of this, like the sort of high water zenith mark of this was when Mark Garrett recruited these two European players to play on my high school water polo team. One guy's name was um, Bobo... Andras, and the other guy's name was Darko Dimitrovich. Uh, Bobo had played on the Hungarian national team, 
and the Hungarians are some of the best water polo players in the world. And Darko had played on the Serbian national team, which are like the best water polo players in the world. And this was the equivalent of having basically Michael Jordan and LeBron James come play on your high school basketball team. In the very first game that these dudes played in the water, Darko broke a guy's collarbone down in Monterey. <laughs> and he's like, what? He touched me. You know, like, <laughs> there was like the other league coaches were irate. It was like a total scam. It was insane how good these guys oh my were. God. Yeah. <laughs> and what uh, position were you playing? So I played a whole set. Uh, I'm sorry, whole guard. So two meter defender. So if you think of water polo like basketball, um, there's there's these players kind of in a, a semicircle, and then there's one guy in the center who's like the center in basketball, and I would defend that guy in the center. So that's the position. You're definitely not necessarily the fastest swimmer, but like you fight the most. So you kind of like wrestle around in the middle of the pool with this dude in a speedo um, until, and you fight each other until the ref blows the whistle. Water polo, because I never played water polo uh, growing up, but I had a lot of some of my best friends played water polo, and they would come back from games being like, "You have no idea the shit that goes down in a game. If the ref doesn't see it, you're doing it." Like elbows, you know, like pinching, all kinds, like anything goes under the water. So later on, Mark Garrett took us over to Hungary to like train with the national team there with Bobo's former team and Bobo went on to be a star at Stanford, all American at Stanford. Like that's how insanely good these guys were in, in high school. And, uh, and Bobo, and I remember in Bobo's team, we like practice and we played in this like lake, right? You can like feel the moss at the bottom. Um, but they literally, before we started, it was, this was like a friendly thing. Like, and we were helping each other train. They gave a ball twisting clinic. Like, this is the proper way to twist the ball. And like, you like reach in with your foot to pull down the speedo. And then you like, twist not the it. ball you're playing with. No, <laughs> the huevos. The huevos rancheros. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Always to the left, yeah. not to the right. It's a, it's a brutal sport. Wow. And then, so, was what was the step after that? So you, you stuck with water polo after high school. And then I played at the academy. Uh, and so you went from high school to playing water polo at the Naval Academy. Right, right. And, then, and so that's a D1 team. And we were competitive. We often would make NC2As the final four. Um, out of the Eastern Division, but we couldn't usually compete. We were like close, but no cigar when it came to the the really big powerhouses like UCLA or USC. We're always a top 10 team, um, but never like a number one. And how many years were you in the Naval Academy playing water polo? So I played for two years at the Naval Academy, and then I transferred back to UC Santa Cruz, and I was captain of the team here at, at UC Santa Cruz. Um, and then I... And in between that, I had tried out and I had made the junior national team. Um, so I water polo all throughout college and then went and then immediately thereafter, after I finished college, I, I had a year where I was doing this kind of um, this ocean racing circuit. I was lifeguarding and then competing as a lifeguard on, on this circuit, um, doing run, swim, runs and paddles and all this stuff. And, and I did all that while I was training to go back into the service, um, in which point I subsequently entered the Navy, and yeah. Then... When you went to the Naval Academy, uh, initially where you, I mean, you kind of go to the Naval Academy to expect to become like a Navy SEAL, or what What was so your, I was, your so, direction or your kind of like yeah, long-term motivations? So I that? was recruited to play water polo, and so that was that was part of my motivation. My primary motivation was that I, I wanted to fly, 
So when I was young, my dad, I was just obsessed with aviation and I took flight lessons uh, right down here at the Watsonville airport and I flew little Cessna 152s. And I started doing that when I was really young and I had watched a lot of Top Gun and I thought I was going to be a Navy pilot. Highway to the danger zone. <laughs> danger zone, yeah. It was more like the shirtless volleyball and jeans. Yeah, that was yeah. actually a <laughs> great scene. Yeah. Great scene. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to fly. I just yeah. wanted to play volleyball yeah. with those guys. That's what I thought pilots did. Uh, <laughs> well, you got the, the you got the Ducati. You yeah. play volleyball now down in Venice. You totally. kind of made it happen for yourself. Well done. Totally, totally. I'm just like you, I'm you didn't just get trying the to bring Top Gun back. Baby. <laughs> You're not flying the planes, but you got the shirtless volleyball and the Ducati. That's all that matters. Apparently, that was the part that I only cared about, anyways. <laughs> right? Yeah. The truth comes and out. Kelly McGillis was it that that girl? I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Way to fake it, Kyle. Like, uh, <laughs> you're like, yeah, that's before my time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, no, I've I've seen it, I've seen it, but Kelly McGill in it, I don't know that actress. Yeah, so. whoever the female lead love interest yeah. was, yeah. Um, she was. Uh, so yeah, so originally I wanted to fly, and that was my motivation, and uh, you know, Top Gun, naval officer. Uh, Navy pilot, all that stuff. And when I got there, I actually didn't even know what SEALs were when I went to the Naval Academy. Uh, when I, you know, so I reported to the Naval Academy, I was 17, it was 1995. And SEALs, like, just people didn't know what, nobody had ever heard of it. There was like one bad Charlie Sheen movie called Navy SEALs, which is actually pretty funny if you go back and watch it now. But for the most part, when it came to special operations, people were thinking about Delta Force and Chuck Norris and Green Berets. John Wayne style. And, and that was the focus, frankly, through the first half of my SEAL career. Um, and then subsequently, a bunch of things happened circa 2007, 2008, 2009, sort of culminating with the bin Laden raid that really put SEALs on the map. And the pendulum has, has fully swung from, from when I was a kid entering the service and nobody had ever heard of SEALs to now we're like thrust firmly in the limelight, um, which has both positive and negative consequences. What is a Navy SEAL? And what are the biggest misconceptions about Navy SEALs? Sure. So the, the Navy SEALs are the maritime special operations component of Special Operations Command. So there's, there's uh, four services, the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, and the Marine Corps. Each of them has a special operations component. We're the Navy's special operations component, um, naval special warfare. And so the naval special warfare community is comprised of, of sort of two disciplines. There are what are called SEALs and SWICs. So the SEALs um, stands for Sea, Air, and Land. It's the Navy's Maritime Special Operations Force that conducts direct action missions, special reconnaissance, things like that, all the stuff you see in the movies. Um, and then there's the SWICs, which are the Special Warfare Combined Crewmen. So they provide a lot of the logistical support. So they drive those fast attack boats, and they insert SEALs onto targets and provide cover for SEALs and stuff like that. Uh, I like to talk about them because they're an often forgotten part of the of the naval special warfare community, uh, the biggest misconceptions about seals, um, you know, I don't know. I think there's always there's always this idea that seals are like these giant like knuckle dragging paleolithic like killers break glass in case of war, and that's true. There's there's plenty of those guys, um, but. In general, I would say because the training process is so difficult because it's so grueling because you go through hell week, which supposedly takes four years off your life, takes six months to recover from, a, 
seals are not necessarily like giant muscle heads. They come in all shapes, shapes and sizes. Um, some are really good watermen. Some are not. Um, they're, you know, I think you'd be surprised. Some are, they, they come from all backgrounds and, and all spectrums of, of, of life and experience in general. I guess the common thread is, um, like sort of toughness and a, a willingness not to quit and the ability to withstand adversity. Discipline. Mm-hmm. And discipline. Incredibly dis- disciplined community. Mm-hmm. It is. It is. And it's not a homogenous community. And you see guys in their post-seal careers do all kinds of things. Um, but yeah, I mean, and so like I'm describing it as diverse, but it's not as diverse as I'm describing it. The truth is I can walk into a bar and like can often tell by someone's posture or his like sunglasses or his demeanor, like, oh, that guy's a frog man, right? We can smell our own. Right. <laughs> um, how do you think that growing up being in the ocean water polo helped you uh, during that kind of training? I, it gave me an incredible competitive advantage. The The truth is while the water component is a component of SEAL training, it's not as large a component as everybody thinks. There are certain things you have to do, like two-mile ocean swims and um, and then during dive phase, which is kind of the most difficult water part of it, you have to do this thing called pool competency. And that's basically a test of whether you're comfortable in the water. It involves you underwater with scuba gear and a bunch of instructors doing what's called sharking, which is basically beating you up underwater. And you, while they're doing that, you have all these procedures you have to go through. They're tying your hoses, your regular hoses in knots and all this stuff. So you're like sort of without water. And people... It very quickly determines whether somebody's comfortable in the water or not. So maybe say the maritime part of SEAL training is 10 or 15% of it, the water. And I'm, it's kind of arbitrary. I don't actually know how much it is. But it's some small percentage of the training time. Um, it, it took that part of the training off the table for me. So everybody else, and what I mean by that is that while everybody else was stressing, like, holy shit, we got another time swim. If I fail, I'm going to be, like, you know, put up for discipline or on the bubble for getting kicked out of training or I'm going to get kicked out of training or whatever. Like, I never had to worry about it. Like, those were times to cruise for me. Like, the all that stuff, the pool competency stuff, all the, the – there's this one thing where you have to, like, tread water for uh, 15 minutes with – or maybe it's five minutes, I can't remember, for a long period of time with these things called twin 80s, which are these twin 80cc scuba tanks on your back and you have to tread water and, and like, people struggle. Like you want to see a bunch of aspiring seals look like they're drowning, right? Like that's it. And like that shit was so easy for me and the instructors knew it was easy for me. I did it without fins. Everybody else got to wear fins. Like I did it without fins. So there was, and there's been other water polo players who are, who are strong water men who have had similar experiences. But basically all of my background all of my time in the ocean surfing in Santa Cruz or playing water polo made that component of training easy. I won every swim in training with my swim buddy. And, and even towards the end, it gave me a big advantage. Uh, whereas we had guys who were on the bubble for not passing the swims. And what they do is they would partner me up with those guys. And I'd tie a rope to myself and I'd kind of tow them along to make sure our buddies pass the swim. Um, so it look, some of the best water men in the world will not get through buds because it's a small component, but it certainly was a major part of, of my success in training. Hmm. What do you think it is about, um, you know, that you can have these really tough guys and the second they run out of air, 
it's like their entire world comes crashing down and they begin to panic. Because I've been in a number of situations where a non-water person starts to panic in the water. And I can tell you there are a few situations I've seen in life where I've seen a human lose it that badly. And it's just a fascinating component of life, right? It's like that the joke, uh, why is air a lot like sex? Because it's no big deal until you're not getting any. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but I wanted to get your thoughts on that because I know that you've been in a number of, of situations where you've seen people obviously panic, drowning. Um, and then one of um, the stories that you've done was on bringing waterboarding to light, which is um, a technique that our military uses um, that you can, I, I want you to get into more, but um, yeah, what are yeah. your thoughts? Yeah, it's a, it's it's a interesting through line, and you had even mentioned it before, like when you said, like, you know, in some ways, my whole life has this through line of of water through it. Even the journalism story that put me on the national map had to do with water, and that was when I exposed waterboarding to the American public. Um, but to answer your, tell me that story. I will. I will. Um, and I, but I guess to answer your your first question is like. I don't know why. There's just something primal about breathing. And this is related to waterboarding. This is why waterboarding is such an effective technique. Um, if you believe that torture works, uh, waterboarding is an effective technique because like when people like can't breathe, like they know they only got like a minute or two before it's lights out and they expire. So waterboarding is basically a technique that actually dates back to the 1600s. Queen Isabella and King Ferdinand used it to rid the Spanish uh, peninsula of like Moors, Jews, and other undesirables. Um, and the churches used it. It was like there's this long legacy of waterboarding being used throughout history to interrogate people or to simply just straight torture them. But it's basically a technique where your head is placed below your feet on your strap to a board and some kind of cloth or rag uh, is placed in your mouth and then either with a hose or a, a bucket or, or, or something, they, they pour water into your mouth and some cases down your throat. There's a couple different varieties and techniques, but the basic idea is that it simulates drowning. Because um, every time you take an inhale, it's coming in with water. Exactly. So you get a little bit of air, but you're kind of coughing and it's constantly... Depends how drowning. it's done. In the past, sometimes they used a technique called pumping, which is sometimes mistaken for waterboarding, where they literally just fill your stomach to like it puts pressure on your internal organs. And uh, But in general, yeah, what you said, it simulates the idea of drowning. And when I've ever described waterboarding to people, like the best analogy, although it's really... It's an imperfect analogy that I can come up with is it's like being shackled to the bottom of a pool. And so for most people who, like you said, like really like flip out when they they can't breathe, like they kind of get that that's a horrible feeling. And even I knew waterboarding because it's done to um, it's it's done to seals during our training in this thing called SEER, Survival, Evasion, Resistance, Escape. So I had been waterboarded in my training as a SEAL, and then I recognized that um, it was being done to suspects in the global war on terror. And so I knew this was a controversial thing. And in my, early in my journalism career, right as I was transitioning out of the service in 2006, when I just did my first couple of television pieces, I did this piece where... I paid a professional interrogator to waterboard me. And that kind of launched me onto the national stage in journalism. It was the first time I was on like 
those big networks like CNN and ABC and, and all that stuff. Right. Um, do you think that waterboarding is effective? Most professional interrogators will tell you that hard interrogations don't work or they only work to corroborate information with soft interrogation. So when we're thinking about torture as an issue, there it's important to think about two things. First, the efficacy, the efficacy equation, the efficaciousness of torture. Does it work? And then like the moral consequences of it. Should we be doing it? If you can answer the efficaciousness question, does it work? Um, then you don't even need to address the moral concerns if the answer is no. I, I personally believe that under torture and duress, people will tell you anything that you want to hear. So I'm dubious about the actual intel value of torturing people. I'm also dubious, not just about that, that but that like all the circumstances would align perfectly that you would get like some kind, because everybody always says like, what if there's like a bomb buried? Jack Bauer syndrome. Tell me where they are. Totally. Tell me where they are. And the ticking time bomb scenario, right? right? And it's so yeah. rare that you would have the person that you would have time. It's just such a hypothetical situation um, that I think it's not really instructive for our thinking purposes. So um, lots of people have, uh, you know, the agency still maintains that the enhanced, the CIA and the Central Intelligence Agency still maintains that the enhanced interrogation program led to critical intelligence on that got on the bin Laden operation. Um, I, I personally have some, some doubts about that. The unanswerable question is like whether you would have been able to ascertain that same information um, without using those methods that most people, especially from the international community, believe constitute torture. What's the U.S.'s current policy on torture, do you know? Sure. So even throughout the global war on terror, the official U.S. policy as signers to the U.N. Declaration on Human Rights and the Geneva Convention was that we don't torture. What they did was that they played word games with the definition of torture, right? And so they wrote into Title X, and they had there was these Justice Department memos written um, by this guy, Jonathan Yu, uh, and stuff that basically watered down what the definition of torture was so that by the position of the Bush administration was that torture is something that constitutes pain equivalent to death. Right? And most people think that there are other things that like shy of pain equivalent to death that fall within the definition of torture, psychological torture, mock executions, things like that. Um, so most international people believe that waterboarding and some of the other enhanced interrogation tech, most of the international community and many of, much of the human rights community in the United States believe that the enhanced interrogation techniques that were used during the global war on terror constitute torture. Um, and we have subsequently, Obama has banned the vast majority of those. So we don't waterboard anymore and we don't use those enhanced interrogation techniques. So, uh, our, our, our position is the same that, that it's been for decades, like we don't torture. Uh, but now it seems to be that we've aligned policy and domestic law in that in something in more accordance that mirrors international law more closely than we did, say, from 2000 to 2008. What do we still do? Anything? I mean, do we still 
Um, I don't want to get too yeah, down too, into this rabbit hole. You don't want to go too down the terror rabbit yeah, hole. Yeah, no. Right? Um, but uh, I mean, is there still like like sleep deprivation and that kind of stuff? Because I mean, I just don't. I don't know the current state of it. I think that most people don't. Yeah, um, we don't know. And you also have to remember, like the necessity and the value of that potential intel has dramatically lessened, right? Like, what are like we got Bin Laden? Like, what are what are we trying to achieve through that? So I I, I don't actually. No, and I think part of the point is nobody really knows like what happens when you like roll up a suspect in the global war on terror. I will say that I think policy wise those those kind of dark lawless days seem to be behind us. Um, although if you like listen to sort of political rhetoric, um, you know the the door is always open for us to go down that path again. Um. What stories have you done as a journalist that you think have um, made the biggest impact? I think early on the the waterboarding piece had a tremendous amount of impact and it stoked a national conversation about um, both the efficacy and the morality of these techniques. So I think that's good. Uh, The last time we spoke, we talked about uh, my work in northern Nigeria where I exposed the the war against Boko Haram there and, and showed people for the first time what it was like. So I'm, I'm very proud of that. And I uh, had the honor of testifying uh, in front of the Senate um, with Senator Mark Kirk about this issue and about the humanitarian situation in northern Nigeria. So, um, you know, you never know if it moves the needle, but uh, you, you hope that by talking in these sort of annals of power that you're, you're making some sort of difference. Um, I also did... Um, you know, some work on uh, prison reform um, and on mass incarceration that I don't think by any means any of my pieces directly or I produced a season of lockup. I don't think that those directly impacted policy, but I do think that they've been part of a cacophony of conversations that are about changing the system of mass incarceration. So those are those are three kind of things that I would highlight in terms of work I've done. When you're doing... Oh, and my work in Somalia. I was the first Western journalist in Mogadishu in a decade, Um, and I think I exposed some uh, some ideas about Somalia and some some images of Somalia. So this is something that that I um, wrestle with a lot in terms of storytelling, because there are stories that we tell um, that shed light on a situation that can start a conversation, but there's not necessarily at the end of the story a go to this website to do this. There's not the direct, there's not the next actionable step. Um, And then there are stories where there is a direct actionable step. And I've done stories on both. And and I think that like, I mean, if you're doing a story on plastic pollution, right? It's like, well, don't get a plastic bottle bottle or bag, right? But if you're doing a story on um, uh, ISIS in Northern Africa, right? It's, you can't exactly <laughs> totally. create that shift as simply, but it's still an important story. I guess the the question is, when you're going at a big story like this, um, what are your motivations in terms of results that will happen from the piece? Yeah, I, th- I think about this quite a bit. Um, and I don't have a pure answer. I do think that our first job as filmmakers or journalists is is creating awareness. And I do think that there is real benefit, not extraordinarily measurable, but that the first challenge is people don't know what they don't know. So uh, just by creating awareness, I do think that we have accomplished a good portion of our mission. The second 
phase, which you're talking about, is how you translate that awareness into action. And I'm not sure that that's always our role. I think that there, and in this case, I want to be a little more nuanced and granular, thinking on kind of like a story-by-story basis, because it's also important for filmmakers and journalists to be careful when crossing the advocacy threshold. Now, that doesn't mean that they never cross it, right? Because I don't believe in this sort of this news paradigm of objective journalism. I think that there's a kind of a bullshit objectivity that journalists sometimes hide behind. I'm more of the Molly Ivan school who once said, I can never pretend to have the same perspective as a 14 year old from Compton. Like I am who I am with all of my prejudices. Uh, so I, and you can't be neutral on a moving train with a lot of these issues. It's exactly. Like you have to take exactly. some sort of stance. And, right. Right. At the same time, I I think maybe an interesting example to think... You can't be neutral on a moving train. I don't know if I said... Right. You have to be. Yeah, you can't be as the Noam Chomsky quote. Exactly. Yeah, I knew exactly what you meant. Yeah, I I think it's like... uh, I think a good example to kind of explore that question that people are talking that's got buzz lately is the Making a Murderer series on Netflix. Really good piece of filmmaking. Really extraordinary. It's done like... And I was... You know, had the privilege of hosting a panel with the two lawyers who were involved in the case, these guys, Dean and Jerry. And we packed an L.A. Um, theater auditorium, and there was, like, people with signs, like, we love you, Dean and Jerry, right? People really got into this, like, piece that was about the fissures in the criminal justice system. And I think that's extraordinarily positive. When you really look at it, the filmmakers had a very, very specific slant and take on that case. And it certainly led the sort of average consumer to the idea that like this guy's obviously innocent. And, and like I don't know because like there was a lot left out of it. They only had access they had extraordinary access, but to the family, right, who are predisposed to believe a certain thing. And so these kind of I guess you'd call them like suprajudicial exposes or investigations, like they add value, but they shouldn't be determinant. Um, because they're a, a non-objective, they're a subjective filmmaker's opinion. So I, I think that's kind of a classic example. Like the, so the, and it, I'm using it as a long-winded way to answer your advocacy question. Like the advocacy there from making a murder series, the impact there is not that like you get Stephen Avery out of prison right because like we don't actually know because like the filmmakers have their own inherent biases and we have to have like you know the criminal justice system should decide that not like filmmakers not the american public via the lens of filmmakers right but where the advocacy comes in is in pointing out the faults and flaws and fissures in the criminal justice system and in the system of mass incarceration right and then the advocacy maybe becomes that like you have a mobilized population who cares about these issues and they spread out in a million different ways to create impact and change in that by pressuring pressuring their congressional representatives to like strike down three strikes laws like whatever it is right um so i think that's where the advocacy comes the advocacy comes not in like a specific case but in the sort of like bigger awareness translating into action and then you're motivated and moved to do something on a, a subject maybe versus versus a particular instance when does someone not get to call themselves a journalist because i think that we're living this time now right we're anyone can become a content creator and anyone can look 
I mean, myself included, right? Like a lot of my earliest stories, I was just a kid with a camera, but kind of played the, you know, I saw some yeah. vice docs and was like, hi, like I'm on the beach in <laughs> Chile right now. The, you know, the place where the coal power plant is going to go on, you know, and I like kind of took that role and people were like, oh yeah, Kyle, you're a journalist. And I'm like, well, not really because I'm not adhering to any journalist guidelines, but it can kind of like, there's a lot of content that's put out now that's kind of journalistic -y, but not real journalism. And I think the danger in that is the public doesn't necessarily know the difference. I, 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 I totally agree. And I, feel your pain and you guys are like my or you guys you guys meaning you and me are we're like-minded in the sense that we've always been slightly uncomfortable with the title of journalist you know maybe sometimes for different reasons like for me like i see all the flaws in the classic journalism system right the like this idea of objective journalism and that like you're just this outside passive observer for me it was really hard to go from being the man in the arena to being the man talking about the man in the arena. And so if if anything, I always like had all these like made up terms for myself, like action journalist, immersive journalist, right? And I like would hold some of the the tropes and notions and principles and values of journalism in my head. And I and I learned those, right? Like I learned those working for different news agencies and organizations and stuff. Like I guess I'm a, a bona fide journalist, but a reluctant journalist. So that's my personal like deal with the dilemma that you're just describing. But I also have this like larger philosophical deal, like what is sort of sanctified as good information and analysis. And for that, I actually, I think journalism has journalism, uh, like conventional or like sanctified journalism, right? Mainstream media has some of the same problems as citizen generated journalism as well as citizen journalism right and yes because something has the cnn stamp of approval on it you have some idea that there's like a better editorial fact-checking process that goes with it but i don't think it's a virtual guarantee and then some of these institutions um so then you're like you're you're left with like a few institutions that you know do like really extreme and thorough fact checking like the New York Times right and there's a few even as a journalist like I'm a vice journalist and I'm writing an article there's only a few organizations that like we can when we're fact checking our stuff we have people who fact check the articles we write there's only a few organizations that we can use where they say, hey, where'd you source that fact? And you say like, oh, a New York Times article? And the fact checker's like, okay, check, good enough, right? There's only a few of those out there, New York Times being one, New Yorker being one, because their fact checking processes are so thorough and so vetted that you know it's probably okay. Um, but I think this is a huge problem, and I think it's a huge problem for unsophisticated consumers. It, I mean, like the non-fancy way to say this is like people believe any shit they read on the internet and that's like a huge problem. And like there's lots of smart people thinking about this, but I don't know that there's a good answer. Um, and yeah, I don't know what the answer is either, but it's a conversation that I wanted to have with you. <laughs> yeah. um, and another one that I, that I wanted to have with you because almost all um, media uh, companies kind of follow the same revenue model now, 
except for maybe like Democracy Now um, mm-hmm. and a couple other like public radio ones is they get brands on board to pay for the content that they want to make, right? Where there was, um, and you might know this this law better than I do, but in the 70s, right, the fairness doctrine was taken away where um, it used to be that there was one hour of news that was provided to the public because the, the our government was like the public deserves to be educated and then there was this realization in media where wait we can make so much money by having brands on board and traditionally that was with you know tv where now we cut to advertisements right they they um make the wheels go around for every every for the editorial teams to go out and do what they do but now with digital journalism um you have much more integrated storytelling with brands and it it it, again like i don't know what the answer is to it um but I wanted to get your thoughts on the current state of journalism, where it benefits, and um, also where it, it could be a danger. Yeah, it's a huge issue, and you've you've definitely you've hit the nail on the head. I guess the the short summation is that like somebody's got to pay for the expensive shit that we make, and right now it seems like the best or the most feasible model is that brands pay for it in somehow, and that creates all kinds of potential conflicts of interest, and I think that those just have to be navigated by the individual outlets slash content creators, um, And but the thing that will be most helpful in what's going to be an ongoing evolution of who pays for content, how does that influence the editorial nature of content, is that we have to in some ways enter a new era of radical transparency. And I think that will help sort of mitigate a lot of the problems that are that are coming as these new media and old media models as the plate tectonics of them are shifting and so one small example would be that um there's this pressure to get information out quickly and sometimes in fact more often than not right and you know this the CIA will corroborate this if if you can get them on the phone but more often than not like those first early stages of information are the most inaccurate right but like for a news organization there's this sort of duty and economic pressure to report those as quickly as possible you have to balance that with with thoroughness um and so i think in the future there's going to have to be like a more real time process of correcting breaking news kind of information and you're just sort of radically transparent like this is the information we got here this is why we reported it uh and then this other like counterpoint came in and then so we're correcting that to this um and by exposing that process and maybe even inviting and uh, bringing people citizens into that process you can build more consumer trust and i think that will will help but um, until, well, I was going to say there's always been these Medici's, these patron saints of the arts, right? And journalism is, is an art until some Medici decides to like fully fund journalism. Like we won't solve the problem, but that's totally not true, right? Like Jeff Skoll started an entire television network called Pivot TV that was sort of devoted to these good issues, right? And there are billionaire philanthropists who are, um, who are doing this, like the, you know, the, the intercept with, uh, um, Pierre Almadar, right. is funded by Pierre Almadar, but those guys are business savvy guys and they're not going to like 
throw their money away and pivot closed and, and all that stuff. So it's beyond sort of billionaire patrons. It's it's a larger systemic question. It is. Did you ever uh, check out the John Stewart episode? Or, I mean, uh, John Oliver episode that just came out on journalism. Uh uh-uh. So good. Oh, is well, it? Because it, it's kind of like it goes into the shift of like he talks about the real danger of it. Right. Is that you have this lack of investigative journalism as a lot of uh, media companies turn into these like multimedia platforms, right? Where it's kind of just you're re-aggregating information to your own brand, right? Where it like, oh, we saw Kaj do a story in northern Nigeria and now 10 other media outlets kind of go oh, out right. and, and repackage that story and totally. you have less and less people who are actually in the field getting yeah. the the true story right like that was i mean when you went on uh john oh. john stewart with john oliver right like it was the whole idea that what you guys were talking about when cnn was closing their investigative program and, the, and there was like the joke of like well we can skype now and it's like well i don't know how many <laughs> war-torn children have skype right. to be able to get their stories totally i mean and this is a big theme for john who's a friend of mine uh is the demise of investigative journalism and real information um and so i'm not surprised that he's done another piece like john being derivative of himself like we did the best piece ever on the daily show for it no that, right. that's great i i mean john's been a crusader john Oliver. Oliver and John Stewart both uh, have been incredible crusaders on this topic, and um, I think they have helped actually sort of accelerate this dynamic change within media because they did what mockumentarians do best is that they pointed out so much of the artifice of what we called traditional media. And I think they actually, in some ways, and I say this as a positive, helped accelerate the demise of what we know as traditional media because these these are emperor has no clothes guys. They're like, look at this dude. This right. is ridiculous. Right. Yeah, that's that's their power. Um, I want to be respectful of your time, so I just have a few more questions. Um, but one thing that I've noticed about you as long as um, we've been friends is that you are you're very driven to success, but you're also very driven to significance. Like I, I think that it, it's apparent that you want your life to have significant impact um, on people you surround yourself with, as well as the world, hence you getting into journalism. Um, what kind of significance would you like to make? Like if you, when you look back on your life, um, what kind of change do you want to see in the world? I mean, and, and just hopefully um, feel like you were a part of that change. Um, and I, I know that you, you know, a lot of the people who you look up to are those you know, those great politicians. Um, I mean, your, your friend Al Gore, you know, you know, you listen to JFK speeches and all that kind of stuff. You're a total sucker for, for like this significant life. And I wanted to, to dig into that a little bit. Yeah, totally. I mean, I went to the John F. Kennedy school of government, right. And he was a naval officer on PT 109, which is essentially an early swift boat. And then I was like a, a, a swift boat commander, uh, not really a swift boat, but the evolution of the swift boat. So yeah, huge inspiration to my life. And uh, what many people don't know is that in, in 1962, with one stroke of the pen, President Kennedy created both the SEAL teams and the Peace Corps. And if you think about two expressions of national power, while they're on sort of opposite ends of the spectrum, in some way, there are these two really significant expressions of the U.S. influence in the world. There are places in the world where the only influence or the only interaction that people are going to have with Americans is either going to be through the Peace Corps or through the military. 
um, and 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 that matters. So both of those institutions should be the best possible representations of the United States. For me personally, um, I don't know. I think for whatever the next near-term part of my career is, it's going to be balancing that equation we were talking about between awareness and action, right? So continuing to create, to shine a light in dark places, and that could be literally or metaphorically. It could be like, you know, conflicts that people haven't seen before, or um, it could be, um, you know, injustices that haven't been exposed before. So I, I continue to create around the concept of raising awareness and then finding those pockets where that awareness can then translate into action. So um, if I make more powerful films that change people's thinking or give them new information that helps change their thinking, then I can figure out how to make a difference from there. Um, and I think if I do like, if, if I accumulate a bunch of those throughout my lifetime, um, in the aggregate, it, it will have made an impact. Now, I'm always like, it's always a personal tension, right? Like my joke is always like, God, I should just go open a surf school in Costa Rica, right? And so I'm always like you. Um, I think we both recognize that like there's something attractive about that. But at the end of the day, we're, we keep, we're, we're called back and we're compelled to do these things that might help nudge you know, our community and our world in like a slightly better direction. Who are people who you uh, look up to right now, who you see as having very significant lives? Um, and what specifically is it about them that you really respect and look up to? Um, I think there's, you know, a whole series of my colleagues who are, who are making, um, who are making media that matters. My uh, friend and, and, colleague Lisa Ling at CNN is is doing incredible work. There's a whole great crew of documentarians, and thank God there's a business model for documentaries. Again, my friend Taggart Siegel just made a film called Seed that's that's really interesting about um, some of the roots of our of our, our farming culture. Um, what what was it about that? Oh, because I want to dig into not just the people, but what it is actually that you think makes them that allows them to have that kind of significance. I. I, th I think that they're just making great, smart films, right? Or in Lisa's case, great, smart episodes um, that that matter. And then a bunch of my friends from Vice who like have gone into harm's way to tell stories, right? Like the Syrian refugee, like um, my friend Aris, who was a fellow Vice correspondent. Um, you know, Syria was an impenetrable place and he went in there and like almost got blown up a bazillion times to tell stories from there. And then my friend Simon in, uh, Simon Ostrovsky in Eastern Ukraine, he went, he tracked a Russian soldier when Putin was saying there was no Russian soldiers in Eastern Ukraine. He tracked a guy through selfies on his Facebook and Instagram, right? And proved that there were Russian soldiers in Eastern Ukraine. And that like explicitly disproved what a head of state the <laughs> the president of Russia was saying like right? Th that's really extraordinary work and perilous Simon was kidnapped in Ukraine for he was held for like 48 hours or 72 hours or something so they, all of those guys who are are willing to put themselves in harm's way in order um, to to expose these things that are going on Syria's 
an unbelievable humanitarian crisis. What's happening in, in Europe, in the Mediterranean with 5 million refugees, like is insane. It's insane. It's tragic. Um, and I think people who are putting a, a face to those stories are, are really doing incredible work. Nice. And how about on the fitness and health end? Who are yeah. people who oh. you really look up to and respect? And at yeah. the end of your life, you'd be like, hell yeah. If, if I so, even got close to that, I would be stoked. I, I So I just met, I've been doing the, uh, to come full circle to the, the water theme, you know, like, see, we, we got away from it for a little bit. And then like, you got to come back to it's the how ocean. how you're a journalist. Yeah. As journalists, it's yeah. the 10,000 foot view now. <laughs> it's always got to come back to the ocean. We're not journalists. I'm not a journalist. Yes. I don't know why I just said that. Action journalist. <laughs> <laughs> Professional lifestylist. Yes. <laughs> yes. And that lifestyle involves ocean. Um, so I've been doing the, uh, this workout with Laird Hamilton lately and it's Laird's it's called XPT extreme performance training. Uh, but it's kind of, uh, based a lot. I don't know. In summary, there's, there's a lot of stuff about it. People can look it up, but yeah, it's kind of like underwater CrossFit. And then we do these ice baths at the end and all this stuff. And I met this, this dude up at, uh, his workout who's 80 years old and he runs this thing called the Malibu mob, which is a group of other octogenarians who basically work out two to three hours a day. They paddleboard, they cycle, they do all this stuff. And, uh, and Don, uh, this guy's name is Don Wildman and he was the founder of Bally's fitness. And so in some sense, uh, you know, if I can be like Don when I'm 80 and still working out two and a half hours every day, like I'm, I'm doing well. Nice. Anything else um, you want to talk about before we take off to the the listeners out there? Anything that you? No, I should jam. But uh, the other, uh, you know, the other dude who, frankly, is pretty close to home and you know him pretty well is like my dad is one of the most extraordinary athletes of all time. He plays handball three to four hours a day, and then he'll jump in the ocean and swim the buoy at Cowles, which is what we used to make the junior guards swim. So in some sense, if I can still be like a 75 year old junior guard, like that's the other success metric that I'd like to achieve. Nice. Nice. (laughs) All right. Thanks for coming on. What, um, where can people find you? Oh, uh, all the usual social media, uh, all the usual social media channels, Facebook, Twitter, vice on Friday nights on HBO, um, and then I got some other stuff cooking soon, but maybe that's our conversation for our next podcast. Can't wait to make it happen. Yeah, buddy. Thanks again. Yes, that was our show. I hope you enjoyed it. If you liked that, please give me a rating on iTunes. It helps. Or go to kyle.surf and leave a comment in the blog section. Let me know what I can be doing better, what kind of guests you want to see on my show. Big thank you to a couple people. First off, DJ Bottom Feeder. He is the sexy man who created the groovy tunes that you listen to for my intro and outro. Go to SoundCloud and check out Bottom Feeder. Also, a big thank you to my friends Brendan and Joe for inspiring this podcast and holding my hand along the way. And finally, to my girlfriend, I love you. You're my rock. You support me all the way. Until next time, everyone, get out there, enjoy your day, get in the ocean, and I will see you soon.